Hey, everybody. Welcome to Around the Farm, the podcast about all things ag. I'm your host, Clint Chaffer, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Amanda Easterly and Dr. Cody Creech from the University of Nebraska. And we're going to be talking about optimizing your wheat rotation. So stay tuned. Dr. Easterly, Dr. Creech, uh, welcome to uh, to Around the Farm. Uh, how about uh, you, you give an introduction to the uh, to the listeners here? All right. Thank you again for having us. My name is Amanda Easterly, and I am a research assistant professor at the High Plains Ag Lab near Sydney, Nebraska. And I get to work with Dr. Cody Creech, also on the call in dryland cropping systems research. And uh, I am Dr. Cody Creech. I am located up here in at the at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center located in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And as uh, Dr. Easterly said, we we do a drying crop research uh, and uh, focus really on like the water use efficiency of crops and um, the different uh, types of, of uh, rotations that we can do um, in this type of environment that we are living in. Gotcha. Well, again, welcome to the show as well. So, I, I know that, uh, that that both of you are really involved in a in a lot of different testing at uh, at your facilities. There, what are what are some of the kind of the different tests and and experiments that uh, that y'all are running? We we do a little bit of everything. We do small plot research, looking at you know single year variety performance, all the way to multi year environments or multi-year testing where we look at different rotations, um, long-term soil health properties and so forth. We really we run, run quite the gamut. And with Dr. Creech's background in weed science and cropping systems, I have a background in plant breeding and genetics. It's, we can bring a lot of really cool research to the table. And, and I think just kind of to Add on to Amanda's comments. Um, the uh, because of the environment that we live in out here, with the uh, we have about 16 inches of rainfall out here. Uh, producers are willing to try anything um, if if they can handle the uh, dry weather that we have and the environment that we have. Um, they they uh, they will try about uh, about any type of crop or any different uh, a, a scenario. So. Uh, not only do we work in corn and soybean, but we also work in wheat and, and sunflowers and prosil millet and field peas um, and many other crops because they will try just about anything if they think it might work. I, I could imagine. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, a little, uh, actually, I think more than or less than, uh, less than half of the rainfall that we get annually on our farms. So uh, I can't imagine uh, uh all the different trials and experiments trying to find that uh, that right crop for that environment there. So, you know, I tell you what, my my background is uh, is corn and soybeans, and uh, I have to be honest with you, with, with the both of you, I don't know a ton about wheat, so I am excited to have this conversation today and uh, and really dig in and learn a lot more. So what's been some of the most exciting steps that uh, that really have uh, happened within uh, within wheat over the last 10 years? Yeah, so um, as far as, uh, you know, just uh, things that are exciting about wheat, um, there's been a lot of work, at least in our area uh, specifically, uh, looking at uh, uh, a pest we have out here is wheat stem sawfly. And it's uh, just a horrible pest that there's really no well, uh, good solution to 
to, to actively manage that pest. And uh, what wheat stem sulfide does is it uh, lays an egg in the wheat stem and it burrows down in that wheat stem and it girdles the bottom of the stem, causing the uh, wheat to lodge. And it can uh, cause a lot of issues come, come uh, harvest time. And probably for the past 10 years or so, it's been a big issue here in Nebraska and down into Northeast Colorado. It's been a big issue up in Montana for quite a while. Um, and I guess we were the fortunate ones to get to have it next. Um, but uh, a lot of work has gone into that past as far as understanding kind of its biology, uh, how it works. Uh, um, and as well as on the breeding side, the breeders are trying to uh, develop lines that are more resistant or tolerant to uh, this pest so that they will stand up better to it. Because uh, there's really nothing that we can spray to control it. Um, there's, we, uh, we can't really manage it other ways. So uh, uh, developing some type of resistance into our wheat lines is gonna be the best solution for us. And to follow up on that, the, the sawfly really is the biggest turtle that we producers in our region are facing. And um, I'm married to a farmer and it's really devastating to go out to a field that was standing beautifully a week ago and you go just grab a handful of stems and they just come up like straws that have been just cut at the base. So that's that's one of our biggest challenges. One of the, the other newer technologies that is coming into the market is of course, unlike corn and soybeans, wheat does not have transgenic varieties available. And uh, so weed control can be a big issue as well. And there are two herbicide mode of actions now that are non-transgenic um, to allow two different herbicides to be used uh, beyond as well as aggressor. And so having varieties that are tolerant to those has been a big benefit to growers in our region as well. Yeah, you know, you, you talk about, you know, walking out in that field and, uh, you know, we've we, we've seen it on our farm as well, right? You, you can be growing the most beautiful crop and all of a sudden uh, something happens and, it's not not so beautiful anymore, and uh, so anything that we can do to prevent that, I think, is always always key. You know, uh, Doctor Easterly, you talked about uh, you know having uh, breeding and genetics, and it's always uh, uh, I always like to to jump into part of that as well. Have have you seen the the yield and and protein levels of of wheat increase over the past decade? I would say yes, um, and it's it's not just genetics. I think. And the growers on the whole are, are really, really um, innovative folks and they figure out ways and work with their agronomists and their seedsmen to find solutions that bring a whole package together. So the genetics are, are one big piece of it. And then you combine the right genetics with you know, the right agronomic practices to really stack the deck in your favor. Well, and and talking about some of those uh, agronomic pieces, you know, I know uh, one of the one of the you know conversations that's really happening is is really around fertility and and just uh, uh, you know access to fertilizer and and things of that nature. Um, what are you seeing farmers trying to to do to really maximize their their fertilizer uh, you know efficacy you know moving forward into into this next season? Yeah, that's something that uh, has been a big issue for our producers as far as, um, especially with a wheat crop that might not generate the same amount of revenue as a corn or a soybean crop. Uh, they have to be smart about how they spend those dollars. 
And uh, one thing that we recommend our growers do to get the most out of that nitrogen that they put on is to think about that timing. You know, if you put it all, all on in the fall, um, there's a chance that it might leach out of that soil profile. You know, if, if you think about, again, we, it doesn't have a big root system. It's, it's there near the top of the soil. You know, those top six, eight inches is where that bulk of those roots are going to be. And if we get a, a little bit of rain, that's going to move that to nitrogen out of that profile. And so uh, we, we like to split up our applications if we can. Um, and there's two periods that we'd like to target as far as having um, the, the right amount of nitrogen there available to the plant. One of them is just there before jointing. We want to make sure we have that to, available because that's when that wheat crop uh, determines its its actual yield potential. You, you know, so if it's short nitrogen, then it's going to be short on on your yield as well. Um, however, that, that's not when it uses the most nitrogen. It uses the most nitrogen as that wheat crop matures and it starts to, to uh, develop that head. So it's absolutely critical that we have that nitrogen available there at the very end of uh, of that growing period. And so um, if a grower only has the ability to put on 20 pounds N in a given year for some reason. We're going to recommend that they try to put that on as late as possible so it's available when that plant most needs it. Other agronomic pieces are, um, especially in wheat, where historically farmers planted, you know, a bushel to the acre was the, the rule of thumb for, for seeding. Uh, you know, as opposed to our corn and soybean production, where we're targeting a certain number of plants per acre, um, historically everything was based on a pounds per acre basis for planting. And so one of the other things that we are really honing in on is looking at the variability that you can see in seed size and targeting, you know, seeds per acre, and then also being mindful of getting a good stand early in the year so that you have good competition, good growth, ultimately good yield. You know, you, you talk about some of the the planting rates, you know, and uh, Dad and I, we always try to uh, make it a point to, to run different trials, right? You know, you talk about uh, different populations and whatnot. Are, are those the same kind of trials that, uh, that, that farmers are doing within uh, wheat as well? I mean, is there, are, are they doing different, different stand counts or population trials uh, as, they're, as they're trying different, uh, different tactics? I think a lot do and a lot, you know, are starting to look more closely at their seed when it comes in to adjust accordingly. And then of course, timing plays an issue in wheat. So if you're coming in, as we move, see more wheat moving back into some traditional corn and soybean areas as you move further east, which I think is a real benefit to growers to start incorporating wheat, you know, when they can, even if they're not um, used to growing it, is is timing your seeding rate and your your time of planting appropriately. So if you're coming in after soybeans, you need to bump the population up a little bit to get good fall growth in that winter wheat. Um, if you're coming in early, you keep it a little more standard, but you just, you have to hedge your bets as you move through the planting season. You know, you, you talked about, you know, uh, you know the, that, that wheat starting to move into to different locations. I would imagine some of the fluctuations in, uh, in the commodity prices, I mean, has, has that started impacting on, on farmers wanting to, to plant more wheat to, than maybe what they have in the past? I think you can see that with just the 
cost of the inputs right now. Um, wheat's a fairly low input crop. And so if that's something that a producer wants to try to control, uh, they can get wheat in that rotation and control some of those input costs um, and and still be able to grow a, a grow a crop in, um, you know, basically half a year. Um, and so it really has a, you know, wheat has a place in a rotation um, from that standpoint, but also if a grower uh, needs access to that field uh, later in the year, whether it, you know, they are close to a cattle operation and they need a place to uh, go out, you know, mid-year and spread manure, uh, that's going to be a, an option. Or if um, they want to come in behind it and grow a forage crop, they can do that as well. And so it provides some flexibility in a crop rotation to think about putting wheat in a crop rotation. To follow up on, on that, I also think it's another tool in the toolbox for a lot of growers that are used to corn and soybeans. Again, if you think about division of labor as it's difficult to find labor sometimes, if you're able to spread out your efforts and labor, labor across the year, that can be helpful as well. You know, if you have a hard time getting to all of your beans in the fall, well, if you transition some of those acres to soybean, then you're able to help spread that load out and not be pushing quite as hard. Plus, you also have the benefit of really good residue. So if you have a, a wheat crop and you leave that residue over the winter, you have some natural weed suppression into the fall and you maintain some good soil structure and then you can no-till corn in behind it. Well, and that, that, that leads right into my, my next question, which is, uh, you know, soil health, crop rotation. Uh, what, what is, you know, I guess... What is that best crop rotation that, that you end up seeing, or, or maybe what are the different crop rotations that, that farmers are doing in, uh, in your neck of the woods there uh, to really maximize their, their output? So where, where we're based, wheat is the cornerstone crop. Um, that's just the, the long and short of it. Historically, most rotations were a wheat fallow. So it alternated as just a simple two-year rotation with the idea that that fallow period allowed the soil to retain more moisture um, over time and through a lot of research done by Cody's and my predecessors, uh, it's actually been found that fallow really is not as efficient as it was once thought. So a good number of growers have intensified their operations moving to three and four year rotations, whether that's wheat corn fallow, wheat corn millet fallow, or some variation thereof. And then, of course, we do have growers adding in um, for soil health and for diversifying their operations, things like field peas and sunflowers, so that we're not growing all grass-type species. Yeah, and what we've seen is folks have intensified those rotations and maybe even diversified those rotations away from wheat fallow. Our soil health has improved. Um, just because if you think about a fallow period, you have that period where there's nothing growing. And for those microbes and things in the soil, it's just a it's just not very good for those, you know, those natural processes that are going on. And so by by keeping something growing in the soil all the time, you know, you know, as we know with cover crops and other things, it is really beneficial to our soil health. And uh, and, and I think that helps our whole system overall in, uh, in the long run. And just as fertilizer prices aren't getting any lower, chemical prices generally aren't either. So if you're going to have to be using, you know, some sort of pest management system to keep your weeds down, you may as well be getting a crop out of that season as well. Um, 
Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, pardon my ignorance here. I'm going to have to ask a couple basic questions just for my lack of knowledge here. But uh, when you talk about fallow ground, you're talking about, I mean, it is, it's bare soil, right? I mean, there there's no crop that's planted. And at that point, are you, are you still doing a weed control uh, on that fallow ground then as well? Well, hopefully it's not totally bare ground. Um, hopefully you have residue from the previous crop that's helping to maintain some of that soil cover. And so historically fallow periods, again, were just simply bare ground and it was maintained weed free through, you know, running through the field with whatever implement made sense. Um, a lot of our growers do use more of a no-till chem fallow system. And so the fallow, the, the weed free conditions are maintained through herbicides. Yeah, so if you think about, a, for example, a wheat corn fallow rotation, which is fairly common out here, um, that corn would be planted in that wheat residue. And then, of course, we harvest it in October, November. And then that corn residue would be sitting there in the field um, the following year until we plant our wheat crop again, which would be in September. And so we would plant directly into that those uh, corn stalks uh, that are remaining in, in in the following year, September. So it sits open about 13 months of the year. There's nothing going on um, other than hopefully weed control. All right. Well, one other question that I got too. I mean, another, you, you, you may laugh at me here, but uh, you know, we, we farm over in Illinois and we farm corn and soybeans. I mean, is this a, is this a ro crop rotation that, uh, that, that dad and I need to be uh, considering rolling weed into our operation? Well, well, as Amanda, you know, uh, as Amanda mentioned, there are a lot of benefits to wheat in a rotation. Um, one of the things that maybe folks don't realize is is how competitive wheat is with with weeds. And so um, we've done a lot of work out here looking at wheat in rotations, in irrigated rotations. Um, and just by putting wheat in one out of every four years can have a big impact on the seed bank of weeds in your cropping system because um, especially winter wheat, it comes up, it's thick, it, you know, it has a good stand um, and it does a fantastic job of suppressing weeds, even like Palmer amaranth. Uh, we can have a, if, if you have a really good stand of wheat, you, you have very few Palmer amaranth plants can get up through that wheat crop. Um, however, of course, once you harvest that wheat crop in, in uh, July, you know, because of Palmer amaranth's, uh, germination pattern, uh, you might have some that emerge late in the year and you're going you to have to plan for that and, and uh, control those plants then, but it does a really good job suppressing weeds. Um, and also, it, you know, like I mentioned before, it opens up the opportunity to grow a second crop behind that wheat crop. And so um, we, we find the more we can diversify our crop rotations, it really throws off those, those weed cycles. And so uh, Palmer amaranth does well because of that corn soybean rotation. We're not out in that field, um, you know, in that late summer period when, you know, we can't be out there controlling those weeds at that point. Um, by throwing that wheat crop in, it gives us a chance to get out there and spray something different or do something different that's going to kind of throw that wheat, that uh, weed crop um, off its normal pattern. And in your neck of the woods, you have a little bit longer growing season than we do. I mean, we're, we're sitting up here at, near altitudes to Denver. Um, so we've got a pretty short growing season. There are a good chunk of folks in Illinois that can can double crop behind uh, wheat and put a short day 
soybean in there or short season soybean and get two crops out of that year. So, well, I love trying to convince my old man to do something new, you know. So, uh, so you know, it, it may be one of those. I may have to get uh, one or both of you on a on a call with him one of these days, and you know, to 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 convince him. But uh, no, that uh, that's that's just fascinating. I think uh, it, to 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 both your points, I think uh, anytime that you can just do that, a different crop rotation and and try some new things, I think it uh, it's always exciting. I think uh, it's one of the things I love about the agricultural community is everybody always wants to continue to learn which is, uh, you know, brings me back to, to trials. Do you see a lot of farmers uh, within the, the wheat community running a lot of different types of trials throughout, uh, throughout the year? And, and if so, what, what, are, what would be some of those that, uh, that you'd see them participating in? We see a good mix. In Nebraska, we're fortunate. Um, our extension service does on-farm testing. And so you can pair with a local extension agent and, you know, help do some large scale trials on your own operation. Of course, uh, a lot of growers will also say, I'm gonna plant a strip of this and a strip of that side by side, see what happens. And then in addition, we're fortunate that we have, uh, as researchers ourselves, we have good collaborations with growers in the region who gratefully, you know, share, share farm ground with us and we can go put, you know, a pretty good sized variety trial out there and test 50 to 60 varieties in a field, get an idea of how they perform, you know, in that space and time, and then compare how things change, you know, as you move geographically or move year to year. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, you know, our growers are not by any means set in their ways out here. Um, they will try anything if there is a crop that will germinate, they will try it. And so we have growers that just on their own will go out and plant, you know, a, a new variety of dry bean or will go out and, and uh, you know, soybeans, you know, dryland soybeans out here, um, folks folks do it. And they, you know, and, and uh, typical yields for us in dryland soybeans are about 25 to 30 bushel out here. And 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 folks will 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 absolutely do it because it's just something different and it's uh, that they will tr they will try it. I guarantee it. You can't believe uh, that low soybean yield, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I won't no, tell you what a good corn yield looks like. <laughs> You know that's always the, the the fun part about talking to uh, to folks in different areas, right? Uh, yields vary, uh, inputs vary, everything you know really kind of varies across the board, and it's always fascinating to uh, to talk to to folks like yourself that are in a different you know geography and kind of experience different things of that nature. So uh, it's always uh, always the fun to have these conversations. So. Um, you know, you, one of the things that I'd also look at on the trial side of things, uh, collecting that data, making sure that we're tracking things appropriately is always always key, right? Trying to trying to learn what we did last year to make sure that we can make the changes uh, in the in the next season. Um, what are some of the the tools that you use to to really help track some of that data throughout the season? I think there's two different ways to look at this. You know. The first way you can look at it is from a grower side, and um, I really encourage our growers to, to try new things. Um, however, when you try new things, you got to be willing to um, uh, have the correct uh, uh, some type of a check or or a control so that you know that you're doing something different. Just going out and trying and you know planting a whole, a whole field 
to a certain crop or variety uh, doesn't really help you. If we can split that field up in, in a couple different ways, that's going to help the, the grower know what's going on. Um, one thing I talk a lot to our producers about is, is adjuvants. You know, when they're out spraying, there's a lot of adjuvants on the market, partly because there's no real set standard for adjuvants, right? So we have a lot of different uh, companies that are in that field, um, a lot of different uh, products that might say, say uh, NIS on them um, doesn't mean that they're, you know, this NIS product might not be as good as that one. And the only way we can know which one works best is to, you know, mix up one spray tank with one and go spray it and in the field and then go mix up another tank of something else and spray it right next to it and see what we like. Um, and so on the grower side, that's what we have to do. We have to make those comparisons. But on a university side, we're able to make that a lot smaller into those small research plots where we can apply a lot of different treatments. And, and for us, we can be out there more intensively, uh, 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 taking a, probably a higher level of data that uh, a grower would want to do. Um, and, and then we try to get that information digested in some way that a grower can use it, you know, so that they can understand it and use it. Because if they can understand it and use it and apply it in the field, then we're not doing our job as uh, researchers. And we, we are also finding new and exciting ways on the university side to leverage our counterparts in other departments. Um, I am not a programmer by any stretch of imagination. I can, I can do enough data analysis and so forth to, to get out what I need. But we, we've recently partnered with another group on campus and we're working towards developing web-based applications that growers can use to track the data that we're collecting on those small plots over time. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, having access to, to that data and, and, you know, really being able to dig into it and, uh, and like I said, just understand what works and what doesn't work. Uh, that uh, it's, it's, that's probably one of the most uh, important pieces there. So it's, uh, it's always exciting to hear about, uh, about the data collection process. So um, one other question that I have too, uh, this is just uh, probably a more of a personal question as well and my curiosity, uh, does wheat have different relative maturity ranges like soybeans and, and corn? Wheat tends to be, yes, it does have different maturity ranges, um, but they're not maybe labeled as intensively as for corn and for soybeans. So I... I, I don't have anyone coming and asking me for a, you know, 240 day wheat, um, <laughs> for example. Uh, but we do see relative differences in maturities and similar to what you would do in any other operation. Most growers are diversifying their portfolio as far as maturities go, knowing that, you know, if I have a field that it's tough to get to during harvest, I'm going to plant something a little later maturity so that it's still standing well by the time I get to that field. Gotcha. Okay. As I said, I guess I was always curious about that. So I figured uh, y'all would be the right folks to ask. So <laughs> uh, one last question I got for you both. Uh, as you look out into the future, uh, I've asked you about, uh, you know, some of the steps that, uh, the, that wheat has seen just over the past, you know, let's say 10 years. Looking out into the future, what's the most exciting thing that, uh, that you see from, from both your perspectives that, uh, that are really going to have a big impact on wheat moving forward? Well, I'm hoping that Amanda will talk about it, about her uh, hybrid wheat experience. 
But I will share, uh, you know, as far as what I see as 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 being a big thing, um, we've really um, uh, wheat's kind of been kind of the ugly stepchild where it hasn't really been, um, you know, I guess had a lot of attention given to it from the management side. And I think we can really elevate this uh, crop to uh, a, a new level just by um, how we manage it. Um, you, uh, you know, we can manage it more intensively um, and we can provide better recommendations to our producers to uh, do that. So um, we are working a lot right now to uh, revise our fertility management for uh, wheat. Um, again, we have new varieties that are just far better varieties than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. And we need to constantly update those recommendations. And so I think by, by working on the agronomic side of things, um, we can really elevate this wheat crop to uh, yield better, but on but more importantly, have better quality from the protein and the baking and milling side, which is what bakers and millers want is that quality um, at the end of the day, because that helps us um, uh, as far as like our wheat value, it's really all about the quality. And so um, if we don't have good quality wheat, we, you know, nobody wants to buy it. And so uh, we can do a lot of that just by how we manage that wheat crop. Yeah, that, that's a piece that we really haven't talked about yet today is that unlike a lot of other commodity grains, wheat is a commodity, but it's graded based on the quality aspects because it is, you know, moving directly into our breads and our cakes and our cookies. Um, and so that, that quality piece pay, plays a huge role. And so there's continual efforts to breed and develop varieties that, that are more opportunistic and take good advantage of our management decisions and then paired again as Cody mentioned with you know really honing in on what management matters and translates to that quality as well as yield I think is is helpful um, in our part of the world we were a little bit slower to adopt some of the like prescription fertility regimens and things but as those technologies become more accessible and as fertilizer and input prices continue to rise, more and more growers are moving towards that sort of a model, even in wheat, looking to try to optimize as best they can. That makes sense. You know, that, that actually brings up one more question, even though I said that last one was my last. But, uh, you know, what is more important? Or maybe they, they, they're directly related. But I guess from a wheat perspective, you bring up the, the quality and the, the protein level and things of that nature. What's more important, the, the quality or the yield? Both, because both are going to really drive um, a grower's bottom line. I mean, I can raise... 70 bushel wheat, but if it doesn't have any protein, I'm going to take it to the elevator and not make, you know, enough to, to offset my cost. Um, on the flip side, if I can, you know, get a pretty good yield, which is negatively correlated with grain protein, generally speaking, if I can manage those two and keep them both at good competitive levels, a lot of times I can go to the elevator and get a premium because the quality is higher. And then the bakers and the end users are able to blend that off and produce a higher quality flour. 
Well, that is, uh, again, a process that I am just not familiar with, but it's absolutely fascinating to me. So, uh, you know, wheat is something that uh, is, a, is, is a, a big part of probably all of our lives, right? As you think about, uh, you mentioned bread and cake and cookies, my mouth water and sitting here thinking about that. I'm getting close to lunch here. I'm getting hungry. So uh, <laughs> I have to go find me some wheat bread here. So, uh so, Dr. Easterly, I got to ask, uh, I know Dr. Creech just mentioned hybrid wheat, and uh, and I know, I, I don't even know what to ask, but I feel like we need to have that discussion. So, can you give us some, uh, some insight around that? Well, hybrid wheat is a thing. Um, it's actually been uh, tested a number of times, dating all the way back to the 1950s. There was a pretty good push in the 80s and early 90s to try to get hybrid wheat off the ground and of course, um, hybrid corn is, you know, we, we wouldn't have the corn crops that we have today if we didn't have those single cross hybrids. Um, and so the idea historically has been, you know, can we leverage that same sort of heterosis, that hybrid advantage in wheat as well? And so, again, wheat is a cornerstone crop, you know, for us out here in this neck of the world. And then it's also a I mean, fundamental calorie source for a lot of us, you know, if you think I hardly go a day without bread. Um, so if we can increase our yields that way, is hybrids one of those ways that we can do that? The, the challenge with hybrid wheat is that you have a structure of the plant that makes it difficult to make hybrids. A corn plant has the tassels and the silks are separate. So to produce hybrid corn, all you have to go do is strip off the tassels and have, you know, whatever you want to use as the male parent right next door. In wheat, it's all encapsulated in that single floret on the head. So it logistically is just more of a challenge to make hybrid wheat. And so there are a number of ways that I won't go into today that you can try to force a wheat plant to hybridize. But it is a growing interest, again, in research areas and in the commercial sector. There are hybrid wheats currently being grown, and a good chunk of those are in Europe, where their yields can sustain the added seed costs. Um, I am hopeful, both um, because it's something near and dear to me, and that I think, again, it adds another tool for growers, is that hybrid wheat can get off the ground here in the U.S. and be, again, another way that that we can improve yields and, you know, incorporate other traits that are useful to growers. So it, it really sounds like the, the the hybrid, you know, getting a, a wheat hybrid is 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 possible. That that's uh, that that's there. It's really it's the, not cheap. It, yeah, not cheap, and and it sounds like maybe the is it the commercialization of it of trying to get large scale, uh, you know, seed, hybrid seeds at that point in time is is that the is that kind of the 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 difficult aspect? I think from a financial standpoint, that is the most difficult aspect in getting hybrid wheat going, and then there's also the the genetic side of it. Um, again, you know, going back to a corn analogy, we have heterotic pools. So when you make a hybrid for a corn hybrid, you're picking from one pool and the other pool, basically trying to maximize that hybrid combination. Um, wheat has been bred, you know, 
for continued quality, there's not necessarily those distinct heterotic pools. And so it's, it's a total mindset and shift for wheat breeders to go from thinking about traditional cultivar development into hybrid parent development. Yeah, that uh, that sounds like a, a whole industry shift right there. <laughs> it really, it really is. So, well, that is fascinating. So, uh, again, that 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 sounds like we could probably have an entire podcast dedicated to to hybrid wheat, maybe one of these days. <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty interesting topic, but yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. So as, as farmers are, are listening and uh, maybe wanting to, to gather some more information and, and maybe do some, uh, some research uh, for their own farms, uh, where, where would you, you know, kind of point, point somebody that wants to learn more about wheat uh, to go get some more information, whether it's books or podcasts or websites, uh, but uh, where, where, where could you point uh, some of our listeners at to, to go chase down some more information around wheat? Yeah, so for our university, we put all of our research out on CropWatch. Uh, you, you know, so from variety testing to research uh, summaries, it's all on CropWatch.unl.edu. That's the quick and easiest way to find things with the University of Nebraska. And I, I'll be honest, I don't listen to too many podcasts. I have small children, so I have to listen to you know really fun music on the the ride into town every day. Um, but my first recommendation for, for folks that are more interested would be simply go, go reach out, start looking for information. A good source is always your local extension office. A lot of times if those folks don't know answers, they'll know someone who does. Um, of course, local agronomists are also good resources. And then reach out to folks around, around the region, around the country, see what's working for them. Again, we're, we're totally different regions and growing environments, but there's a lot we can learn from each other. Is there a, is there a good group of uh, folks on, uh, on Twitter? I know that's where a lot of, a lot of people go anymore to, uh, to, to connect, you know, that's kind of where I call the, the virtual coffee shop, but uh, do you see some uh, information getting uh, transferred there? We do. And again, I think that's an excellent starting place. So get some ideas there, take them, um, to some other trusted advisors and, and start making plans. Yeah, most yeah, yeah most of us are researchers are on Twitter and easily accessible on Twitter. So it's, folks can always message us that way and reach out to us. Dr. Easterly, Dr. Creech, I just want to say thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedules to, uh, to, to come on here on Around the Farm and give us this really in-depth look at, uh, at wheat. I have a ton more questions, so at some point I ask, will you, will, will you come back on the show and, uh, and, uh, and have another conversation with us? You bet. Hey, delighted, yep. Great. Thank you again well, for having us. No, I, I said I, I appreciate your time, so thank you. Thank you. Hey, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Easterly and Dr. Creech for joining us here on Around the Farm today. Also, thank you, the listener. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and leave us a comment along the way as well. Also, Around the Farm is brought to you by Climate Field View. And until next time, we'll see you around the farm.